Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward, and with me, as always, the creator of the show, my co-host, Tom Joke. Christopher, several weeks ago, we featured an all-80s edition of Famous Lost Words, a bunch of interviews all crammed into one show. This week is also all-80s, but the interviews are more in-depth. First up, we have Huey Lewis and the News from 1983, as Huey is talking about the album that catapulted him to number one, Sports. Really interesting clips from a guy that both you and I have mixed feelings about. What else do we have, Tom? Well, we have Andy Bell from Erasure. This interview is from 2006. It's amazing. Andy talks about how he had to lobby to work with his idol from Erasure and then how he grew into the role. He also tells a very personal story that changed his life and inspired a whole bunch of people. And this is very cool. We have a brand new interview with The Spoons. I will be talking with Gordon Sandy and kind of losing my mind because I've loved these guys since I heard the first notes of Nova Heart in 1982. But Let's get started with Huey Lewis. Oh, I love the way that song starts. Hip to be square, Huey Lewis in the news. (laughs) If only it just finished a lot earlier. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we uh, we have clearly established right away from the get-go that Christopher is not a huge fan. I had to actually... Uh ran the emails into his inbox with these <laughs> clips to get him to accept. I, I thought doing my them. news blocker was working. <laughs> <laughs> my Huey blocker. Yes. <laughs> Apparently not. All right. But listen, you I cannot. I did receive them. You cannot <laughs> argue with some of the hits that they had. They had so many big hits um, starting in 1982 with Do You Believe in Love, uh, Working for a Living, Heart and Soul, I Want a New Drug, The Heart of Rock and Roll, If This Is It, um, The Power of Love, Back in time stuck with you hip to be square love that song jacob's ladder um and doing it all for my baby and just like that is an impressive run of hit singles i remain unmoved (laughs) um (laughs) tom we catch up with bay area star huey lewis on the verge of his biggest success he and the news had been recording since 1980 and their second album picture this had broken into the top 20 and gone gold based on the Mutt Lang-written single, which I did not know, Do You Believe in Love? Wow, and it's such a poppy song, too. It's really like, wee you, wee you, wee you. Like, it is weenie for Mutt. (laughs) (laughs) Carrying right along. But no one could have foreseen the success of sports, including me, which went seven times platinum in the U.S. and diamond in Canada. It was built on all those radio-friendly hits that Tom just enumerated for you, um, including Heart and Soul, written by Mike Chapman, who produced Blondie, The Knack, and who wrote Better Be Good to Me, Love is a Battlefield, etc. Right. In this interview from 84, Huey talks about the recording and song selection process and the importance of staying true to their San Francisco roots. Let's kick it off with a great story about the formation of Huey Lewis and the News. Okay, we're, we're all... You know, born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, and we just sort of formed. We didn't answer auditions. I mean, I didn't advertise in trade papers, or and nobody in the band auditioned. I just, I've always, Sean, the keyboard player, was with me in Clover, and we've been together sort of 12 years. And Johnny, the sax player, has been in a ri- in many rival bands from this county, from Marin County. And so um, I've always been a fan of his. And he was playing with Sly Stone at the time, but they were Sly was doing nothing. So I called Johnny up. I said, listen, let's start a band when Clover broke up. And I was asked to run a jam session at our local club called Uncle Charlie's. And um, 
I said, well, you want to run this jam session? And he said, sure. So we did a jam session that, that eventually we called Monday Night Live. And we had comedians and we had a horn section. And some of the Sons of Champlin came down. And Ricky Lee Jones came down one night. And it was really a happening scene. Every Monday night, all the musicians would pile down to Uncle Charlie's and jam. Well, it got to be very popular. And um, one of the studio owners in town offered, us, offered me some free studio time. And I, I naturally took it, even though I didn't know what we'd do with it. And so we cut for a joke. It was during the disco. This was 1978. And for a joke, we cut a disco version of Exodus, or the Monday Night Live band, I guess it was. I can't remember what. For a laugh, I sent it to a friend of mine who lived in England who worked for Phonogram Records, and they loved it. And they signed, They flew me to England, uh, where I played. Um, on, while I was over there, I played with, on Nicolo's Labor of Lust. I did a couple harp sessions for him. And then I, I, they signed me to a singles deal. It gave me six thousand bucks, and with that money, uh, Johnny and I, uh, you know, contrived to put a band together. And we just um, uh, we cut three songs that we had uh, written. We wrote in three days before that, and went in and demoed them up. And it was that demo tape that uh, got the attention of our manager Bob Brown, and eventually Chrysalis. He had a strange success strategy. I really think that you know it's a lot easier once you get in the door. And that's no question. I mean, there's a lot of bands out there who've been trying for years to get record deals, and it really is hard to get a record deal. And then it's really hard to have a first hit. But as you get, as you infiltrate, you know, Jake Riviera, who manages Elvis Costello and used to manage uh, Clover, my band, used to mm -hmm. say, "Infiltrate, then double cross." And it's a great quote, and it's it's something that uh, that I feel is is apropos. And I think once you've infiltrated a bit, radio listens to you more. So although. You know, we're getting a lot of reaction. Our new single is a want a new drug, and everybody's wild about it. But I have to believe that if we hadn't had a couple hits already, people would really be scared of a want a new drug. It's not a pro-drug song. It's not an anti-drug song. It's a love song. And that's really as simple as it is. It's just, it's a, it's a funny love song. This is interesting to me. Unlike a lot of artists who are songwriters, Huey was wide open to outside songs. Songs are kind of like suits or a coat or something. If they mm -hmm. fit they really look good. If they don't fit, it could be a million dollar suit, it doesn't look good. So it's not really in the song, it's whether you feel that you can lend something special to it, or whether you feel you can make it yours and do a better version. Uh, I have to feel anyway that I can do it better than this tape that I'm listening to. And uh, I mean, I get a lot of songs, uh, you know, I always listen to lots of songs. Uh, we produce other groups and so on. So, so I'm always listening to songs. Songs are great. And song hits are where you find them. But and when I listen to some songs I hear are great songs, but I that I could never I couldn't do them better. And other songs I hear are great songs, but I feel that I can do them better. You know. So those are the songs that we do. Huey's thoughts on rebellion are at odds with most bands. Um, no, I don't. I don't have any of those problems with. Uh, you know, uh, we're different than that sort of. Uh, I, I don't think. Uh, you know, what, there isn't really much to rebel against these days. I mean, there is, but it's all, it's all sort of larger issues for me. I mean, the, the angry young men, I mean, what is it they're really rebelling against? The Rolling Stones? And they're like, ah, these guys are too old. We want to be the new Rolling Stones, you know? Mm -hmm. It's just, um, I really haven't given it a lot of the future, believe it or not, a lot of thought. Not much to rebel against. <laughs> <laughs> Here's, you ready, Tom? Here's the true meaning of sports to Huey. I, I really am a sports fan, and, you, and one has to, you know, I found when we're on the road a lot, 
uh, it really is beneficial because there's only you only play an hour and a half, and the other 22 and a half hours can be very boring. We play a little golf. We're terrible at it, but we thump the ball around a bit, you know, and play a little tennis and this sort of stuff. I love fishing. I mean, and I just love fishing, and I, and I would love to fish in Canada, to be honest. My father goes every year fly fishing, and it's, I'd love to do that. Okay, so there you go. An interview with Huey Lewis. And you know what, Christopher? <laughs> I Okay, I think the interview that we just heard is exactly like Huey himself, okay? Like their music, okay? He was kind of likable, kind of straightforward, but it gets a little bit dull in spots. And ultimately, it's not all that interesting. But he was, I don't know, I kind of liked him in it. But I know I heard another interview, which I sent to you before this, which we decided not to run, in which he's just not that, he's not that great and he's not that nice in it. And you had an experience with him that kind of speaks to the latter version of Huey. Well, in the interview, which we, we, we should actually find the, uh, the segment and play it, he, he talks to the interviewer and he says, well, that's not the most original question in the world. <laughs> I'm thinking, whoa, like, you, do you really want to slit the interviewer? That's, right. that's, that's like the game, how you play the game. But you know what? It re- reminded me that he kind of did the same thing to me. Really? And I don't remember the circumstances or what we were talking about at all, but I remember like standing there beside him and thinking, whoa, okay. Yeah. Yeah, How I think survive maybe, this moment. I think he was just a regular guy who didn't have time for all of this, like the interviews and all that. And I think he was just kind of a, it just kind of impatient about about doing it. I don't know what it was about him, but you, anyway, you want to hear one of the great moments with with Huey? I'll just tell you one quick thing. Um, when uh, Steve Anthony at Much Music was uh, ready to interview Huey, um, Huey was late. And so Steve went off into this whole shtick because he had a beard as to whether it should be shaved off or not. The audience voted yes. And so he was in the middle of shaving <laughs> when Huey Lewis showed up. And so they ushered Huey into the makeup room where the, the shaving scene was taking place. Right. And Steve reached out his hand and shook Huey's hand. The only thing was that Steve's hand was completely, absolutely filled with shaving cream. I love it, man. <laughs> Steve Anthony has some great moments. That was a classic Anthony, or agony as we call him, moment. And, um, and Huey was not amused. Oh, I can just see it. Yeah, it's great. I love yeah. it. I love the uh, the attitude of much during those days. And of course, you can read all that in Christopher's book, which you published a few years ago called Is This Live? The Inside Look at the History of Much Music, an oral history. And you do a great job interviewing so many of the people from those days, including the days of when Huey Lewis came to much. <laughs> That's the one. How can I explain Good song, Chains of Love, Andy Bell, lead singer of Erasure. You know, Tom, Erasure might be the most successful band you won't think of when you're making a list of top-selling 80s groups. Wow. Um, Seriously. Yeah. But you know what? 25 million records, 24 top 40 UK hits, all between 86 and 2007. Can't deny that. Right. Andy Bell is our interview subject, and he came into Erasure as a beginner, Mm -hmm. an absolute baby in the business. He had to audition for his future musical partner, Vince Clark, 
who also happened to be his musical hero. Now, Clark was coming off of two highly successful projects. He was a founding member of Depeche Mode. When I'm with you, baby, I'll go out of my head and I just can't get enough. Go ahead. Thank you. And then, we can edit that, can't we, Adam? Sorry. (laughs) And then, recording two hit albums with Alison Moyet as Yaz before that duo imploded. Oh, I get with every situation. Sorry, go ahead. Adam, you can you can also edit that as well, can't you? Okay, okay. You know I can hear you guys, right? <laughs> and he starts us off with a charming story about meeting Vince Clark. Well, I think it was really a, uh, a kismet kind of meeting, you know, because when he, I was a huge fan of his in um, Yaz, and uh, and then after he split with Alison, and he was he was work, doing this other project called the um, Assembly with lots of other singers which didn't quite work out. Um, I was thinking, like, oh, I sh- maybe I should write Vince Clark a letter and see if he needs a singer. You know, this is, this is serious. And then um, I just, because uh, I was working with another guy for about a couple of years, and, uh, and then I saw this little ad in the, in the uh, music paper and called, it, called in, and it was for Vince Clark. And I just thought, like, oh, this is, like, really meant to be. So I thought, well, I'm going to go down and have a really enjoy myself, have a good day. And... Um, and Vince just said, like, I was the 43rd person that walked in after he'd been working the whole weekend, hadn't found anybody. I was the second from last person. And I was just the most refreshing because I, didn't, cause I wasn't in the, in, the, in the business or anything and hardly knew how to hold a mic, microphone. And uh, we, it just went from there. It was kind of the first day that I, um, I sung one song, Who Needs Love Like That, which is on the first album. And my, my voice kind of sprung up into falsetto out of nowhere. I'd, I hadn't tried singing like that before. It just came out out of nowhere. Wow. Yeah, so, they, so he, was, he, had, he had a few more singles coming out yeah. uh, with the Assembly Project, another single with Paul Quinn from a group called Borgi Borgi. Right. And so they put me on a retainer for about uh, four months for £150 a week. <laughs> so for a boy coming from straight off the, um, the, the doll and having £150 a week for doing nothing, I was kind of in heaven, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but, then I, but then I wouldn't... Um, when we started working in the studio, I was so shy and enamoured of Vince that I wouldn't say a word. I just used to sit there and stare at him all the time. Because he was so, like, left field as well with his music. Yeah. You know, that's why I was, a big, that's why I was a, such a fan. That really is a great story. You're a fan, and then you basically lobby to, you know, replace Alison Moyer, like, which is stunning, because she's a great vocalist. And then oh, you yeah. end up working with your idol. That is a classic story. By the way, he is really likable in this piece. Very, very yeah. likable. He talks about how he grew into being a songwriter. It's kind of taken, taken a while, I, I suppose, to serve my apprenticeship and stuff. You know, I thought it was mm-hmm. kind of, I thought I'd done it already, but... Still, I mean, people always refer to, always going to refer to Vince as the kind of songwriter because he was there in the first place, you know. But um, I mean, I I contribute just as just as strongly. It's like a really an equal. It's a fifty-fifty partnership. And I mean, whenever we're writing songs, we just kind of get together and um, Vince Vince strums the chords and I hum the melody and then come up with the words. You can just hear his enthusiasm of being part of that process and growing as a songwriter because of his association with Vince Clark. And as time went on, too, Tom, they developed a new way of collaborating via long distance. We, we wrote the songs together. All the songs were written in the same room. But then as we worked on them, we, um, we sent them backs and forwards through cyberspace, and we had a little thing called um, an eye disc, which is like a, it's, it's like a crystal ball in, in, in space somewhere where you store all the stuff. It's kind of like a, 
um, you know, um, a filing cabinet or something in space. And then, uh, so we would, we would just do that. I mean, I work generally in the evening when Vince is asleep and, uh, or when he's, when he's just getting up and waking up in the morning. Cause he's in Maine now, in um, Portland, Maine. And, um, and he works kind of first thing in the morning when he gets up. He's on farm hours and I'm on, I'm on the night bird hours. Oh, the iDesk crystal ball in space. I wonder if he's really talking about the cloud. I, that must be it. <laughs> yeah. But that, this is crystal ball in space. <laughs> right. This is many years before that. So there you go. He is, and he's not a fan of vocal competition shows, as you'll see. So I just can't stand the, um, the scrutiny that they put through. I think it's kind of, I think it's very cruel. And um, nobody, nobody needs that, you know. I think people really, really need encouragement. And some of the, some of the people that, are, that go on those programs, I mean, they're not really right in the head, you know, and they kind of go on there and, and they're still teased and pulled down. And um, it, uh, I just don't, don't think it's right. It's kind of, mm-hmm. it's very cruel. It does know. seem sort of cruel, doesn't it? It is really cruel. I mean, everything's, everything now is about being rejected and that you're not good enough and... And then people you know, laugh at them. It's, uh, it's yeah. made as a point of humour. You're right. That can be very uh, It's very, it's brutal, very medieval. Yeah. It's, like, it's, it's like the stocks. You know, those people, it's kind of, those people are willing to kind of go on the TV programme. It's like, it's like putting your head in the stocks. Okay, so when, you know, when we did this interview with Andy, you know, that's when those first shows came out. American Idol was huge. The Voice was not out yet. Um, but those shows were just absolute monsters in the ratings and they were widely derided by musicians partly because it was such a phenomenon and partly because in the mind of many musicians those people on stage didn't have to pay their dues by working in clubs they just kind of got a free ride but they also didn't like the way that those singers were being treated especially when they were mocked or rejected outright uh, for their performances so i can see where andy is coming from well he presumably would have seen is it Pop Idol, the one in the UK? I'm not sure. So when he talks about the cruelty of the judges, I assume he means Simon Cowell. <laughs> Probably. Maybe not. Yeah. Um, and he talks about revealing that he's HIV positive. It was just as good, if not better feeling, than, than coming out than being gay in the first place. It just it really felt like a second, a second kind of coming out for me, really. And it's really, you know, it's given... Um, I've had a lot of people kind of, kind of coming up to me and saying thanks a lot. It's made them feel a lot better, and that's kind of that's why I wanted to do it really, and just get it off. It was like a little cloud over my head, and I just wanted to blow it, blow the cloud away. Wow, isn't that interesting? That mm-hmm. revealing that he's HIV positive. Like, imagine the two steps in that young man's life, where he had to come out for the first time, and then he had to come out as HIV positive. And as we know now, HIV is not by any means a death sentence. It is obviously very serious, but it can be treated. But back then, 14 years ago, coming out to that group and setting himself free, and also letting people know that it is a possibility to live a good life um, despite being HIV positive. That's great stuff from Andy Bell. And to be open about it. Yes. I think that that's um, one of the functions that artists can perform is right. to make things possible for people that before were not. Yeah. Yeah, it was a terrific interview subject. Um, our final clip, uh, they talk about, uh, or rather Andy talks about the, their biggest hit in North America, which was Chains of Love. Chains of Love, well, that was, that's kind of our, uh, I suppose that was our first hit in, um, in North America, the first one that got, out, got us recognized in North America. And uh, it's quite a kind of a pervy video for that one. 
Um, and um, but it kind of always it always reminds me of I know quite a few people have said they've sung it sung it on burst into it on uh, gay pride marches and stuff for the song. And um, and for me, I mean, that's kind of like a you know that's a great feeling, and it's kind of. It's a bit, I mean, I'm a huge Motown fan, and that's kind of like one of our kind of Motown-type songs. So and it, always, it always goes down really well live, and I, I really enjoy singing it. Any more facts about Erasure that you want to share with us, Christopher? Just an odd one. Okay. Four of their last six albums are entitled as follows. Light at the End of the World, Tomorrow's World, World Be Gone, and World Beyond. Now, I don't know, did you notice anything kind of odd about that list wow i think their world is coming to an end like what's happening yeah <laughs> that's interesting this is famous last words i'm tom jokic without christopher ward right now and i know christopher's kicking himself because he would like to be with me in this studio right now as we talk to sandy horn and gord depp from the spoons welcome guys thanks very much for coming in well, thanks for having oh, us yeah. so guys i know this is about you but i'm gonna make this about me <laughs> okay. for a moment to maybe the best day of my life in my 20s. I was 20 years old, August 13th, 1982, Exhibition Stadium. Mm. You guys were part of one of the best concert lineups I'd ever seen. You were the opening act for the Police Picnic 2. Yeah. Oh, and it was an awesome day. <laughs> it, was a, it was such a great day, and it was great because, you know, there's a lot of big bands there. There's uh, The Police, of course. Uh, Talking Heads were mm -hmm. just before them. English Beat were just before them. Joan Jett, Joan Jett did not get the best reaction. Do you remember that? Do you yeah, guys remember that? It was, it was awful. It really. was awful. Yeah. They were, she was being pelted by food from the people all around me. Yeah. I'm going, look, I don't think Joan Jett fit on this bill, but let's not. Let's not hurt the woman, and right? Yeah, in retrospect, she's yeah. one of the coolest things. That's, that day. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly right, because she was kind of a trailblazer in punk and new wave and all that, but no one saw her as that. They mm -hmm. saw her as this like heavy metal chick who kind of stood for everything yeah. that we, the cool new wave crowd, <laughs> thought we were part of. But it was, uh -huh. a, it was an embarrassing moment. But I digress. And then uh, you guys opened the show, which was fantastic, because I love you. I loved everybody on this bill. Do you remember, Gord, who was second on that bill? Of course I do. Flock of Seagulls. That's right. Yeah. And you are now playing with Flock of Seagulls. Yeah. That's... I'm the guitar player for the last year and a half and touring, so it's all about Flock and Spoons now. So it's been 40 years since you guys have gotten together, <sighs> uh -huh. which is insane. Yes. 40 years later, you now have a new album out called New Day, New World. And Beautiful Trap is the new single. By the way, sounds fantastic. Let's play a clip of it right now. Uh, so have a listen to this. Beautiful Trap by The Spoons. You took my life and you sorted it out. So what you gonna do for the second act? Cause I'm never gonna fall. I'm never gonna fall. There you go. Brand new music from The Spoons. Beautiful trap. Sounds a lot like The Spoons. And if I may say so, and this is a complete compliment, sounds a little bit like Arcade Fire, which yeah. I love. Mm -hmm. So well, that's just a thought about that. Not that was anything is good. A good compliment, but yeah. I, I think we weren't trying to be nostalgic. I think we saw like a new band that's yes. on the little 80s. You know, the funny thing is, is the sound of the Spoons and the sound of the 80s from that era is really interesting because 
what you did then is what people are doing now. Oh, yeah. It's not that far yeah. away, you know? Drum machines, uh, drum machines, synthesizers, all that stuff is cool again. Yeah. And for a while in the 90s, it wasn't. And even every once in a while, young musicians will come up to us and say, how do you get that 80s sound? Like, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's in our blood. <laughs> That's right. So the point of this show, Famous Lost Words, is we play clips from lost interviews from our archives. Oh, okay. <laughs> and this is always a really weird moment for the, people, the, for the people I play for. So this this interview would have been from 1982, the year of Nova Heart and Arias and Symphonies. I've oh, got the dates yeah, right, yeah, right? Yeah. Okay, so here you are. I think it's mostly you, Gord, that's talking on this. And you're talking about um, how you write for the other members of the band, that it's not just you. It's you're helping to create music. For, you think of everyone when you're writing a song or creating a song, okay? So have a listen to this. When I write the material, I keep everybody in mind. It's not like I have my guitar part and say, okay, well, go ahead and do your part. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of times I'll give the lead line, like the melody to, to Rob, because I feel it should be a keyboard part. Mm-hmm. So often he comes out as the front guy, but it doesn't really bother me because it makes this, the piece that much better. Mm-hmm. But he's coming out of his shell a little bit. Like, at the beginning, he was very unsure playing with us because of his age. He was, what, 15 when he started yeah, with he, he was shorter than everybody. Now he's t- <laughs> as tall as Derek. He's grown in the last year. <laughs> That's no, going to really. be strange, yeah. yeah. He's really grown. Like, he used to be shorter than me, now he's taller. Uh, and growing uh, musically, too, I guess. Well, I guess yeah. you could say so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what can I, you can hear the attitude just dripping from my voice on that, eh? Like, uh, I'm, I'm like Kanye West. I just, I'm, you know, run this, this joint. <laughs> Oh, man, I'm so serious. Wow. Well, yeah, yeah, I suppose you are. But, you know, at that point, both of you were thrust into the spotlight, right? Mm -hmm. And this is just as I don't think uh, much has started yet. It might be right around that time because Nova Heart was was a staple on much. And so you guys would have had so much attention by that point. And maybe, you know, in the onslaught of all that recognition and attention, maybe you would pull back a little bit. But honestly, I didn't notice that. I didn't think, wow, he sounds kind of... You know, whatever. Oh, no, I just got the. Now we're like a lot easier about stuff like that. And then it's like, yeah, you know, I'm kind of telling everybody what to do. That's what it sounds like. like we're not like that at all. But, With yeah. a little bit of a nervous edge. I could hear a yeah. little bit of a nervous edge in your sure. voice that that you don't have so much because you've done so many interviews now, whereas that would have been one of our earlier well, yeah, ones. Yeah, you're talking, <laughs> right. You're talking about the police picnic in the 82. Yes. Like we went from playing like 500 people to like in front of 60,000 people. So you're right. Everything was like jumping into cold water and mm-hmm, shock. Mm-hmm. What? We just look at each other and go, is this really happening? Yeah. Yeah. So it Mm -hmm. it wasn't like a gradual thing that gave us time to learn the ropes of the And while we were doing our, um, did the police picnic, we were actually in downtown Toronto at uh, Sound Interchange recording Arias. So we basically left the studio to go do the gig. (laughs) Wow. And it's such a big opportunity for you guys. So let's talk a little bit about those moments in your career, because that was a trajectory for you guys. You guys do stick finger, stick Stick figures. <laughs> Say that a hundred times fast. <laughs> well, that's embarrassing. So you guys do that album, and it does well. And then you do Aries and Symphonies, uh, preceded, it was preceded by Nova Heart, yeah. right? Because yes. Nova yeah. Heart was already hit. Now, am I right in saying that Nova Heart was the biggest selling 12-inch single in Canada by, within a few months of it being released? That was always my understanding. That's always what I heard. Do you, do you guys know that? I think that? so. Yeah. 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 And it was such an unlikely song. I remember somebody bought a chart. Um, from that time, like top 10 charts from one of the FM stations, Sean FM, wherever it was. And yeah. 
we're on the top 10 with Queen, Led Zeppelin, The Who. With Nova Nuts. Heart, how does that work? Yeah. It's bizarre. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to play this one clip, and you're just talking about Nova Heart, and I think it's the meaning behind the song. So here it is. Nova Heart, the title itself, it's, it, it deals with a personal relationship. It would seem, in a way, the, the hook line, the title line, I live in your Nova Heart. Okay. What? I think you have to listen to it carefully. I'm going to leave this up to the listener. Okay. Get, buy your record. Because there's a, an important message in there. And I think when you listen to it a couple of times and really get all the lyrics, you'll discover what, what I'm talking about. Okay, it's not just the chorus then. It's not just I live no, in there's, your there's, there's a whole meaning to it. Both sides are kind of moralistic in a way, but not in a, in a bad way. It's kind of more optimistic than what was done usually in the 80s, like talking about darkness of you know, cities and... Uh, well, the uh, stick figure neighborhoods. Even. Yeah, exactly. Right. right. And this is completely the opposite. It's really optimistic and sort of guidelines for better living. Quote. <laughs> <laughs> better homes and gardens. Yeah, recommended. A, yes. A happy record. Is this like showing your old yearbook photographs yeah, to yourself? It, yeah, it is. It's, it freaks me out because it sounds like my son. His voice, you know. <laughs> He's sort of unsure about life and just trying to sound sound intelligent. You sure. Know, like you, uh, you know, the meaning behind the song. And I'm mm. probably thinking, I don't know what it's about. <laughs> Let me take a stab at what it's about. To me, it was kind of like a friendly warning to the establishment yep. of people who kind of ran things. I'm not buying everything that exactly. you're selling. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, I've talked about this song. And I've talked about this song on this show with Christopher and how... Every single element about that song, I absolutely adore. There's the drum machine off the top. Then there's that keyboard as it builds, and it gives it a darkness. It gives it a soul, mm -hmm. but it gives it a darkness. The, the keyboard comes in with the riff, and then your vocal, which, again, dark, but it's hopeful, yeah. right, to me. And then, Sandy, your background vocals. Everything about that song was per perfection to me. It's one of my top five favorite Canadian songs of all wow. time. Is there anything else about that song that you can tell us or what it's meant to you guys over the years? You, you nailed it right on the head with the meaning. That's what it was, and which is probably more than your average uh, song from, you know, kids out of high school, yeah. their first album. But, that you know, we can't come up with kind of more punky roots. Like, Stick Figure was pretty raw and... When it was like, ah, we don't even care if we get airplay. We're just going to say what we want to say. You know, that, I'm surprised their label let us do that. So we kind of did that in, in a more nice package with, with Nova Heart, you know, anti-establishment totally. Right. You know? Well, yeah, and, and, and it came across in other ways as well. Um, some people got the song really mixed up. <laughs> Should I tell them that story yeah. about the guy? One of our earlier shows, once the song hit the radio, was out in Cambridge, and uh, we got off stage, and this guy came backstage and he says... You guys do a really good rendition of that new song, I'll Sleep in Your Overalls. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll sleep, sleep in your overalls. Yes, why not? <laughs> so let's talk about those heady times when we, you guys were really hitting your stride with, with virtually every single. Radio's picking it up, particularly in Canada, but in other places around the world. Let's talk about some of the pinch-me moments. What, what were some of those moments? Sandy, why don't you start? Um, well, I think the very first one was just after Nova Heart was released. And we just had it on cassette tape at the time, obviously. <laughs> um, and we'd been given it, but it had been released us also as well. And we were listening to ourselves on in the car, I was in the car yeah. together. And um, it was playing along. And then we, we finished the song. And then Gord popped it out of the cassette player. And it was on the radio. <gasps> and, we're, and we're looking at each other going, 
but it just stopped. <laughs> oh, oh, it's on the radio. And let's see if it's on another station. And then and one time we turned it off and then still playing because the, the car next to us had it gone. And it was oh. like, oh, Jesus, this is like surreal. Anything and is possible. And then walking down the street, uh, a guy was carrying the Nova Heart EP in his hand right. from the record store. All at the same time. That's beautiful. <laughs> uh, what's, do you remember what city you were in at the time? Burlington. Okay. <laughs> <That's our whole laughs> but I mean, there's been other, I mean, the police picnic was surreal. It was a pinch me. Another one, we were touring Culture Club, remember New York City. Mm-hmm. There's a knock at the door. There's Sting and Nile Rogers, who's like a huge producer. And he right. just done David Bowie, or was about to do the Let's Dance album, come to tell us how much they liked us. But the thing is, at the time, as a bunch of kids, we're going, yeah, whatever, come on in. But now I'm going like, what? <laughs> yeah, Sting and Nile Rogers yes. came to our change room. And I saw uh, Nile, uh, who did a couple of our albums, including Romantic Traffic yes. and all that stuff. I saw him a couple years ago. He was touring with with Duran Duran because he produced their album. Yeah. And, and I went backstage after. He was telling everybody the story of how we met. And this is one of the best compliments we've ever gotten by anybody because if you realize how huge Nile Rogers is, he's talking to everybody, yeah, we met Gord because I went to see Culture Club. Now it didn't... That's right, so yeah. But yeah. then the spoons came on, and this is like one of the best compliments. But he said, then the spoons came on, and they were the <laughs> Not Roger said, we were the that, that is pretty amazing. Yeah. And we're still the only Canadian band that he's ever done. We did two yeah. albums together. Okay, so now let's get into the um, the video days, okay? <laughs> and again, talk about looking at your old yearbook pictures. Mm-hmm. When much music came in, that must have... I, we've talked to a few people who said that when Much came in and when their videos aired from coast to coast, that it changed everything in terms of yeah. recognition. Is that w- what your experience totally. was? Yeah. At, at first, we were a little bit afraid of video because now we're not only musicians, now we have to be actors. Right. And the amount of time it took to do the videos and so forth, it was, you know... But once it came out, um, we were the very, you know. We were in the very first episode of Much Music. But we were lucky because we were young, you yeah. know, and we had a cute girl in the band. So we're yeah. overnight, especially with the Nova Heart video, that was not your average rock and roll video. There's Sandy no. in a tutu on a swing in a yes. weird garden and stuff. Right. But because it was so different overnight, everybody in, in Canada knew who we were. So, so, Sandy, let's talk about you being kind of the poster girl for Canadian new wave, whatever you want to call it. Um, as you know, as a twenty-year-old guy, I went, "Oh my God, she's wonderful!" Like, <laughs> like there she is. You know, you're you had perfect '80s hair. You're you know, you're an attractive person. You're in this band and you're rocking the bass. Like, and you know, you're one of the few women in in music at that point. Although there was a real change in music around that point mm-hmm, too, right. where there was a lot more women. But you know, you were you were kind of on the front line of that. What did that whole experience? How did that feel? Well, it was. I didn't really actually think about it at the mm. time that it was happening, mm-hmm. but playing the bass was completely a, kind of an accident. Gordon and I in high school and acoustic guitars and playing the bass on the four lower strings on the acoustic guitars, kind of how it all happened. Right. Um, so I was just kind of like, this sounds like a good journey, this sounds like fun, let's get on it. And later I realized that I was influencing other young females especially coming up Fantastic. even other fellows but yeah. mostly the females coming up and then of course when I changed my hair and my haircuts you know I had this terrible haircut at one point that I called the poodle cut yes it <laughs> was around uh, 1983 the old crimping iron and crimping iron and short hair and I looked like a porcupine <laughs> and um Late girls were going out and cutting their hair, and I was like, no, don't, I didn't mean don't. to do that. <laughs> you guys become, you know, more uh, recognizable. Did it encroach on your privacy a lot when that happened? Oh, yeah. It, did. <laughs> it was it was fun, and, and, and um, 
flattering at first, and it really did get out of control. Like I can't imagine what would have been like for huge bands like the Beatles were. But it got to the point where you go like shopping at the Eaton Center, you come out of the change room, and there'd be a crowd of people waiting, and they'd have to escort you out through the back tunnels or whatever. Wow. Mm-hmm. And we're going, what's wrong with this? But, you know, I guess they were disrupting other people's shopping or something. We'd go into malls, and then we'd cause a crowd, and we'd be escorted out because the stores yeah. were fearful of theft. And Wow. But you know what's funny? It lingers. Like Now, once in a while, people come up and ask for an autograph, which is great. You love yes. it. But you still live with that, like, oh, is something going to happen? Like, you're always sort of wondering, which is stupid, right? But for the rest of your life, and I remember, we, have, we all have kids, and I have and kids don't even realize this until they see it. Like, they've grown up with me. And I remember one time my, my daughter was like 14. We're out somewhere. And these two people came up and asked for an autograph. And she's 14. So he's right. lived with me 14 years. Right? <laughs> and she, as they walk away, she goes, Dad, uh, are you famous or something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had guitars at home. And they just, it's, they're oblivious to that. That's right? right. So, yeah, being in public is a different thing. But it's tamed down. So now it's a pleasure when people come up and say hi. And, and you know, I do think that there's a lot of artists who are a little bit, like, they're a little bit removed from their heritage because it's somehow become an albatross around their neck. But I feel like you guys have embraced both your heritage. And the mm-hmm. fact that you're recording new music, I think, has got to be so gratifying, right? Oh, oh yeah. totally. Yeah. And it wasn't like we had to do it. Like, when you're in the 80s, was it you tour? You make an album, you tour? It was, it was like a, an obligation to the record company. Now mm-hmm. we do it because we have the songs and we love to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, and we, take and we time. have the means to do it mm-hmm. on our own time, yeah. I can't thank both of you enough for coming in here. It's a real thrill and an honor for me to finally meet you guys. You know, it's been uh, 37 years since I went, (laughs) who are these people and where can I find them? Um, We're still uh, around. Yeah, and And that 40th anniversary is just coming over the corner, so be watching for what we're going to be doing. Excellent, excellent. Sandy Horn and Gord Depp from The Spoons on Famous Lost Words, and I just want to thank you guys so much for coming in. That's Morning Train, 9 to 5 by Sheena Easton from 1981. And that's where we land right now as we continue this 80s edition of Famous Lost Words. Sheena was 22 at the time of this interview. She is 60 now. She won the Grammy Award for Best New Artist just after we spoke to her in this interview. Here's an odd fact about Sheena. She was married at the time of the interview. She's been married three times since. And all of the marriages lasted like less than a year. Interesting fact about Sheena Easton. So, back to 1981 we go, just as Morning Train was becoming one of the biggest hits of the year. Here's Sheena Easton in conversation with Mike Holland. Your first big single here in North America is Morning Train 9 to 5. Yeah. That's what's happening right here in Toronto especially, Mm -hmm. too. I know that a lot of stations within America are playing the heck out of that song now. And this is your first major hit in America. How do you feel about that, or North America? Um, I'm delighted. I know that... uh Everyone says that, but it's very special for me to have a hit here. Purely for prestige. Um, it's important to any artist to make it in their home country, and, and I'm pleased that I made it back in Britain, or that I'm getting somewhere back in Britain. But um, to have a hit over here is special, because it is the next territory. When anyone starts to make it back home, it's, everyone says, well, are you going to try for the States? Because, I mean, that, I mean that's, that's the big one, isn't it? And uh, I'm pleased that things are happening over here. The thing I'm looking forward to most, though, is that when eventually I can come over and do some live concerts. Of course, being a woman in music at that time means you get a lot of attention based on your looks. But Sheena says here that she didn't really concentrate on that. I mean, uh, I I suppose the visual side is important, as for anybody, male or female. Um, 
but I don't really concentrate on that. Uh, it's not something that I really thought about. I mean, the photographs and things and the album cover, um, Brian Aris is a, a photographer, mm-hmm. one of the best photographers, who I work with a lot. And uh, his style of photography, matched with like the clothes and all that, has brought about a certain look. And uh, some people find it attractive, some people don't, I suppose. Maybe I'm not other people's type, but it's not something which I concentrate on. In this clip, Sheena admits that being a pop star wasn't quite what she expected. I've only ever done one concert tour of Britain, and uh, I found that in the past two years. I thought when I get into this business professionally, I would be doing a lot of singing, because um, when I was singing as a drama student for three years, I was doing it four or five nights a week while studying. I thought it would be the same, you know, like on the road a lot. It's not like that at all. There's so much um, travelling and television work and radio and interviews that to get on the road and sing live is a luxury. And... uh, but also maybe a killer too, right? Well, if you do long tours, I haven't done a long, extensive tour yet. And this one, um, all in all, will probably just be about 30 dates, which is not a lot compared to some tours. This is Sheena Easton in 1981. She found all the attention around this time to be like a whirlwind. And when you say it like it is happening so fast, it truly is. Yes, it, it seems... It's not as fast for me as it is for the public because... Um, I'm not that old, so I can't claim to have been doing it for 20 years. Mm. But uh, I have been doing it since I was 17. I've been singing, um, and it's been, like, my serious profession. Um, so it's, like, five, six years now I've been working at it. But all the the real success has only come within the last year, and that's what makes it look as if it's just been from nothing. And the success would continue for a few years. She had a few hits with Prince, one of them called Sugar Walls, which in my opinion is one of the worst songs of the 80s, even though I like Prince a lot, and I even like Sheena a lot. I didn't think she suited that song at all. And she had a number two hit with Prince with this song, You've Got the Look. And Sheena had a big country and pop hit with her cover version of Bob Seger's We Got Tonight with Kenny Rogers. Plus, she did the theme for the James Bond movie, For Your Eyes Only. That's Sheena Easton from 1981 as we close out this episode of Famous Lost Words. Just a reminder that in the next few weeks, Christopher and I are going to revisit our new feature called They Should Have Known Better, where we talk about big mistakes by famous musicians. Should Chuck Berry have thought twice about recording the song My Ding-A-Ling? The short answer is yes. Should Elvis have covered Snowbird by Anne Murray? I think you'll guess what my answer to that one is. We want to hear from you. Give us your ideas. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and let us know what you think some of the should-have-known-better moments were for some of your favorite artists. Famous Lost Words is produced by Adam Karsh, executive producer Rob Farina. Special thanks to Rob Basile and Heather Edwards and the rest of the gang at iHeartRadio Canada. Also thanks to Eric Alper for arranging the interview with the Spoons. Thanks, Eric. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Talk to you next week on Famous Lost Words.